0: Hey there everyone, I'm Patrick Ferguson from SkullSplitter Dice and in today's video we're gonna be talking about something that's, well, a bit different than what we usually talk about. Mass combat, which is one of those things in D&D that doesn't seem to have a one size fits all solution despite how many have attempted to make it part of their game. Players enjoy the mental image of their characters rampaging across the battlefield but are brought back down to reality when they start thinking about how they would actually run through that scenario mechanically or narratively. In today's video, I'm gonna be going over D&D's interesting relationship with full-scale warfare. I'm going to give you some tips on implementing mass combat in your game, and at the end of the video, we'll go over a pretty simple mass combat system of my own design that will hopefully allow you and your group to storm the battlefield without making the DM rip their hair out. To some more familiar with D&D's history, you may wonder why anyone would be interested in mass combat when 5e clearly wasn't built for this sort of gameplay, as we can see by their Unearthed Arcana attempts. In my opinion, I don't think the interest most 5e groups have in mass combat comes from the same place that players of mass combat specific games have in the idea. 5e groups are more Lord of the Rings about large battles than Game of Thrones which is to say they prefer to see the battle, which is to say they aren't quite as concerned with realism, nuanced strategy, or the harsh brutality of medieval style warfare. Not always, at least. They wanna rack up a bunch of kills, have a duel with an on-field general or beast, and maybe destroy a siege weapon, that kind of stuff. But that isn't always the case, and sometimes players just really wanna be the reason the tides of battle start to change in their army's favor. That can mean anything from halting a devastating attack, evacuating important NPCs to safety, or even something as direct as leading a battalion into the fray. More on that in a bit later. Regardless of what your players are looking for or whatever DM style you have, there are definitely interesting sessions to be had under the umbrella of mass combat. If there's so much narrative potential on the battlefield like I claim, why isn't it more commonly used in D&D? for some obvious reasons, but I also think there are some that can only be found in the game's history. The earliest days, in fact. As some of you know, D&D started as a sort of supplement to an already established war game. To skim over a lot of detail, the game was called Chainmail, and eventually there were extra rules made to strip away the full armies for single characters within a fantasy setting. Go watch the video by DM at all for a full backstory on this game. It's really an amazing video. What I'm getting at here, though, is that D&D has, since the start, existed in opposition to the concept of mass combat, both mechanically and narratively. Clearly, just because D&D started this way back in the 70s does not mean there should be any sort of purist tradition against 5e mass combat. It just means for a better part of the game's history, the focus was indeed on telling stories far removed from the front lines. Mechanically, this seems to have been the case as well, as there have never been any official D&D mass combat supplements. Well, now that I think about it, I guess Chainmail was really the closest that we ever had to an official D&D combat so? That doesn't make sense. None of this of course has stopped people from homebrewing and imploring their own systems from other war games to infuse warfare into their sessions. For 3.5e and 4e, you can find no shortage of systems created by dedicated fans. Many are just put out there on forums and websites for absolutely free as well. When it comes to 5e, we were blessed with a couple unearthed Arcana posts on the subject, the latter being mildly more refined than the former, I have mentioned a couple times on this channel though that I'm not really a big fan of the number crunching approach to full scale warfare that Wizards of the Coast has given us. I am saddened to say that in my research for this video, this kind of seemed to be the problem with 90% of the custom systems I found as well. Obviously no offense to anyone that enjoys these systems or has worked on them. I just think there is a reason no one looked at these Unearthed Arcana rules and rushed to put them in their game and why neither of them have become official rules in any capacity. The conclusion I have reached after looking into dozens of war game systems and custom D&D mass combat systems, I think the best ones for 5e tend to focus on centering the characters and narrative qualities of the game first. I came across one video that used the mob combat rules from 4e in a pretty inspired way along with a few other similar ideas. There definitely needs to be something that adds mechanical depth to the battle itself, but it can't just be another calculation heavy game stapled onto D&D 5e. Since putting a mass combat system into D&D is not a task easily accomplished, what any DM or group should focus on is what purpose they want warfare to serve narratively. You can have an entire adventure set around the events of a battle, so I'm going to go over a few ideas for settings as well as how to involve your players. First, there's before the battle. This is probably the easiest way to incorporate mass combat by virtue of the mass combat not really happening yet. It does however create some unique types of adventures that range from the strategic to the death defyingly sneaky. The ideas I've listed here are all scenarios I've ran with groups who liked the threat of an army as a setting more than a direct adversary to defeat themselves. Though obviously your players are more than welcome to try that as well. Building a session around this offers a lot of intense but grounded consequences for the PCs. While pre-battle certainly implies that your adventures are going to follow through with the fight, that doesn't have to be the case. Perhaps obtaining substantial information about the enemy will spare the player characters from being forced to the front lines or something of that nature. Or if you're like some of the groups I know, your concern is all about finding the best way to go AWOL without the guards running you down with their hounds. After all, just because a fight is about to happen doesn't mean it's something that the players are trying to get themselves wrapped up in. During the battle is what most people think about when they hear mass combat in 5E. So I'm sure a lot of you out there have a million ideas pertaining to this. The session types I have listed here are what I consider to be the most broadly appealing and quintessential mass combat experiences. Most of them don't need a mass combat system either, just a willingness on the part of the DM to really set the scene and progress the battle around the players in an engaging way. For instance, the first option I have listed is the fog of war, and by that, I just mean trying to put the players in the thick of a fight without having them actually control the fight in any certain way. Maybe they were captured up into the fight and then had to try and survive to the end. Think about the battle scene from Ants, that type of thing. There are definitely ways to put players in the middle of the fight without you having to roll dice to calculate how many of the enemy killed yours and all that jazz. That said, a lot of the options on here are also things that could involve a mass combat system to make things more dynamic and interesting. So don't write off using a mass combat system in any of these scenarios. They just aren't all built to have to require that. One idea I run with a lot of groups that are usually in the form of one-shots is escaping and defending a besieged city, mainly because it allows the players to decide if they even want to defend the city, and if they escape, that just opens up a whole new kind of session, where the threat is an impending enemy army that's breaking through the gate. When I say stuff like sneaking into the enemy stronghold, what I really mean is kind of like the Prince of Persia situation uh, for anyone that doesn't remember that game well. At the opening, there's a huge battle and then the main character sneaks into the fort in order to try and find something that will end the battle quicker. Uh, At least I think that's the opening plot. Anyway, the point is that sneaking into an enemy stronghold is a really great way to get players that are things like rogues and other stuff like that involved in a mass combat scenario without putting them in the fight. What most of these essentially do is turn the battle around them into an ever-changing environmental hazard something that PCs will either try to avoid entirely or try to cut through like a storm. They allow for the DM to throw terrifying curveballs at the players and for the PCs to get a chance to show off how quick thinking and strategic they are. The inherent scale of mass combat also allows the players to figure out what kind of presence they want to be in their campaign's universe. Does your character believe they have what it takes to save the kingdom in battle? Or are they just more concerned with fighting for something else? Much like how mass combat can't just be two armies running into each other, a battle can't just be another encounter. Battles in our real world are documented for ages and are baked into history, often forever altering it in significant ways. The battles in your game should feel like that to the PCs and the world around them, which is why the scenarios I've listed here are pretty high stakes just on the surface of them, but are also very easy to capture the drama of all the sessions leading up to that point. And much like how I mentioned in the pre-battle section, uh, PCs don't even really have to want to be in the fight while the fight's happening. You can totally just, as I listed here, use the fight as a maze, a way to basically create an ever evolving threat around the players while they're just trying to get out of there. And then of course we move on to the aftermath of a big battle. And these session ideas are a great way to continue a session following a massive battle, obviously, but they also make for really good one-shot sessions and as a great start to a new campaign. It follows the rule of getting the PCs right into the thick of conflict and clearly establishes the tone. It also leaves plenty of room for intrigue and discovery for the players. Think about it. If the players are, for instance, exploring the battlefield in a foreign land they are there to conquer, it would make sense that there might be an unseen threat or exotic wonders waiting for them. Let's switch it up a little bit, though. What if the PCs are on the losing side? Fleeing the field of battle before the enemy can run them down or capture them is a really tense session idea. And I think just about anybody can see the stakes in that one. This tactic allows the DM to do a Mad Max Fury Road sort of deal where the threat and chase are immediately communicated to the players. Let's keep talking about scenarios though before I get lost in just how perfect that movie is for the millionth time. If warfare itself is horrific, then it's hard to describe the terror that comes after. These scenarios allow players to be a part of stories that are just as tense as they are human. Throwing that emotion to the side though, the setting of a post-war backdrop does wonders for atmosphere and opening up options for the DM. Seriously, the variety of beasts and secret weapons that the DM can believably throw at players in these scenarios is basically infinite. Aftermath sessions are great for starting players off and equally great at regrounding the campaign following a great fight. Okay, I'm gonna go over DM tips super quick because the last time I gave DM tips on this channel, I talked for like 45 minutes, so. First tip is make sure that this is something that your group actually wants to do. Mass combat might just be something tonally they don't wanna do and the idea of engaging with that with their characters just doesn't make sense to them. Or maybe mechanically, they just wanna focus on other things, either way, just make sure it's something they all wanna do. Um, Number two, determine if your group wants to directly control the battle or just be a part of it. This is a pretty easy one and if they don't want to be directly in control of the battle, that negates the need for a mass combat system altogether. Number three, establish the threat of the battle beforehand and commit to that. Make it clear if the battle is going to be something where a lot of NPCs would potentially die and maybe even the players could risk certain and instant death. Regardless of what kind of stakes you put on to the mass combat session, just commit to that and make sure that it feels as climactic or as lighthearted. Again, I'm thinking of like Lord of the Rings where Gimli and Legolas are counting bodies as they kill orcs and stuff. Just try to find the tone and threat level that you're going for in your battle and stick to it. Next tip is have multiple objectives for the players to accomplish in case they want to be effective elsewhere. Great tip for regular combat, also 100% essential for mass combat, and you might even have to get a little bit more detailed and granular than you once thought. Next tip is all major successes for the player's army should be because of something that the players do. Just like with regular combat, good NPCs should have absolutely none of the true glory in battle and none of the big epic moments that should all be on the players. And it's mass combat, so if anything, they should just be more elevated. Next tip is build towards the battle for multiple sessions and don't be afraid to make the battle span over multiple sessions as well. Depending on what kind of tone and everything you're going for, this might even be better for establishing that real horrific element to war, especially medieval style warfare, which would sometimes last multiple days. Next tip, battles are a great place to have the central villain show up or be established. Or if your campaign is long enough, both. Next tip is don't let historical accuracy create mundanity at your table. Use accuracy to make battles more brutal or more interesting. I know it's a fantasy game, but I still feel the need to say this one. Players probably aren't interested in the fact that fire arrows weren't really a thing historically. Be a history buff, but don't be the fun police. Instead, use facts and historically authentic ideas to immerse your players in the harshness of war. Things like plate-armored knights that keep fighting with dozens of arrows lodged in their armor, which definitely happened. Or the use of light spells and drums to communicate commands to soldiers over the sounds of screams and clanging metal. There are tons of fun ways to, fun. Uh, There are tons of engaging, that's the better word. There are tons of engaging ways for history to help make a fantasy battle. Just have that much more weight and grit to it. Next tip is have a smaller skirmish if you just wanna try out that kind of scenario first before you move on to a really big battle. to go back to Lord of the Rings again, feel free to do a wargs battle before you do your Helm's Deep. Next tip is give each army distinct personalities and fighting styles, or at least give them each a different flavor. This is D&D, your army shouldn't be distinguished by more than just their color of their uniforms. Give one side weird mounts, another side a really special big piece of artillery, you know, things like that. And last tip for the sake of narrative, always go a little bit under what you think the players can handle, because you can always pile on more enemies and twists and stuff like that later. This goes double if you're implementing an actual mass combat system that the players are in control of. Speaking of mass combat system, This is a system that me and my D&D group built for our Lesser Earth campaign that, as we decided early on, would feature warring nations as a major theme. It took a while until we ever saw mass combat, but we kind of knew from the start that what we wanted was a system that allowed for strategy without completely dedicating our time to number crunching. We wanted our story to have room to breathe while also feeling the stakes of the fight. What we came up with has been made to fit just about any enemy or ally, as well as any battle size, and it allows you to be as detailed or as quick start as possible. It is far from perfect, and many wargamers will probably scoff at the things I gloss over or just kind of lump together. But I have ran this system with quite a few groups at this point, and I have been pretty pleased with the results, and I hope you enjoy them as well. Me and my friends have grown to calling it the Frontline system, and we will have a link down in the description eventually when I have all the materials together for you guys to download and integrate it into your own 5e game. But a lot of this stuff, which I'm showing up on screen, can easily be made on your own. You don't have to print anything out, but it'll probably make it easier. You basically only need a sheet to track your battalions, markers for said battalions, and a grid board. And even then, you can just break out things like a ruler instead if you don't have one. Essentially, what we've turned the grid board into is kind of like a... King's War Table, where they look at all the pieces and kind of see how everything's moving. That's kind of the feel that we wanted the system to have. And as a result, it's not as in depth as, like I said, a lot of mass combat systems, but it does get the job done and it gets you into the game as quick as possible. And all you really need are two by one pieces of paper or dry erase flashcards and one by one pieces of paper and flashcards, and then a grid board. As you can see here, this is me and my wife. We're playing through the game just without any D&D session tied around it. This is kind of just to show you how a battle plays out. And this battle took a little under a half hour. And we were also just kind of talking and chatting in between our fight and stuff like that. But this kind of shows you how the fights go. And the scenario that we set up was that I was a local magistrate with the Royal Army trying to quell a rebellion and she had a bunch of rebel soldiers. They were all kind of ranked lower, but she had more of them. Mine had better weaponry, but there were fewer of us. I'll go into more detail about that later, but I'll go over the system really quick. First thing I wanna do is determine how many battalions are fighting on each side, or rather how many groups of different soldier types are fighting. In my system, you don't have to have exact numbers. You just need to know how much of a threat that particular mob of combatants is and then just number each of the battalions onto two by one pieces of paper. And if they're beasts or if they're siege weapons, and if you have ideas for that or don't, it's no big deal, but if they are things like beasts and siege weapons, just use one by one pieces of paper to distinguish them. Next up is the most time-consuming part, and that's to fill in all of the stats of each battalion. And this looks way more time-consuming than it is, but it's honestly just a lot of basic summations and guesses. And again, you can get as detailed as you want, with this system, but it kinda just allows for you to fill in as much as you need and then have a mass combat system to work with. All of the stats are listed up on screen, and these are pretty much up to, like I said, the interpretation of the DM and the players. I generally mark every battalion's engine or beast at a count of 100, not to necessarily represent 100 units, but 100% battle readiness and resilience. And I, I think that's one thing that greatly Um, differentiates this battle system from a lot, is that the 100 or whatever number you put there does not have to represent the full amount of troops. It certainly can, just doesn't have to. To get into what these stats mean though, combat rating can be thought of as the unit's inherent fighting prowess, their natural skill on the battlefield. This will be used as a multiplier for the next stat, the casualty dice. This is supposed to represent how much damage their weapon is capable of dealing. Think of it this way. A peasant mob will have a combat rating of one or two and a casualty dice of a D4 or a D6. Whereas paid mercenaries will have a combat rating of three or four because they're better trained with casualty dice of at least a D6 or D8 because they're also better equipped. The next stat is armor type, and this is one of those things I really tried to simplify, and therefore you only need to determine if a battalion is wearing no armor, light armor, or heavy armor. Heavy armor can spare you casualties, light armor has no modifier, and no armor incurs more casualties when attacked. Movement speed is also simple. The majority of creatures in D&D move between five to six movement grids on a standard grid board, five feet for one grid and all that. Basically, whatever the slowest creature is in the battalion is generally the amount of corresponding movement grids I list in their movement with mounted units close to doubling that. So say for instance, if a battalion includes a creature that's movement speed is 25, that battalion can move five movement grids on this mass combat system as well. The next stat charge rate is basically the cooldown that you have to wait before your unit can charge again. Charging basically allows your units to move an additional 50% of their base movement grids rounding up. A group of armored knights can usually move around five grids but when charging, they can move up to eight grids. Because their armor is so heavy, they will need to wait three turns before charging again. I like to give some units like cavalry an extra bonus for attacking an enemy on the same turn as a charge, but again, this system should only be as detailed as your session needs it to be. Morale is pretty obvious. It's the amount of failed morale rolls a unit can have before fleeing the battle. Feel free to add contextual morale tests, but I think the three I have listed here are just the ones that you have to have. The vast majority of battalions are only going to have one or two failed morale checks in them unless they have some strong tie to the cause or the fight at hand. So say that there's a battalion with a morale of two. That army, after losing 25 or more casualties, would have to roll a D20, and if they get a 15 or higher, they pass. And if they get a 14 or lower, they have to mark it next to their morale. And every 25 troops, they make that check, or if the general dies or flees the field, they also have to make this check. These are things that you'll find that can turn the battle very quickly. And though it's simple, I think the morale system works exactly how it needs to. The next step is determining weapon types and abilities, which can really swing the strategy from light into detailed. I mentioned the strength of a charging cavalry unit earlier, but what if the unit they're charging headlong into is a wall of spears? If you just need the battle to serve a narrative function and little more, you really don't need to get that much more detailed than rock, paper, scissors logic with weapon types and abilities. Swords have advantage over spears, spears can deal extra damage to cavalry, cavalry runs down swords, projectiles hurt everything but have low armor in melee, that sort of thing. Feel free to leave it at that, but also feel free to add so much more if that's what you want. Maybe your slad battalion fighting with spears can take a hit to movement in order to fight with poison tip weapons that hurt more on subsequent attacks. Maybe instead of arrows, you decide to give a battalion spell casting or early firearms, giving you more casualty potential, but also making it so that you can no longer fire over top of allied battalions in an arch. Maybe your battalion is proficient with multiple weapons, allowing you to trade a turn to switch to a better option given the circumstances. The next step is to name a general for each side, and this can be either an NPC or a player. You can go ahead and place your general into one of the battalions on the field, and you can even, again, if you wanna get detailed, give a little bonus to the battalion that they're a part of because they have an experienced fighter leading them. The next step is to determine where the battle will take place as well as any special elements within the environment, uh, if any, you can just make it a simple grid table and then go from there. But I like to add a little bit of stuff to set the scene and maybe add a little bit of restrictions on where the armies can go. The next step is to determine who is attacking and who is defending. The attacker will get to go first, but they also have to place their army first and allow the defender to adjust as they see fit. The only other stipulation on attacker and defender that I like to implement is that the defender gets 10 grids to work with when setting up their army on their side and the attacker only gets five. The next step is to have your players decide where in the battle they want to be as well as what they are doing within each battalion. Perhaps it makes the most narrative sense for them just to be a grunt in the army or maybe they wanna try and be an actual general as I mentioned earlier. This is not necessary for the mass combat system per se but it does help ground it into the collaborative storytelling of D&D. So in that sense, it is very much a necessary step. Next, you're gonna wanna place your battalions and allow the players to have any last minute role-playing moments with other NPCs and even each other, as they may not get the chance after the battle starts. The way that turns work in this mass combat system is that, as I said, the attacker will go first and they get a chance to move every single one of their battalions once. Ranged units can be moved into their ideal position and melee units can also be moved into their proper lines before the battle starts. Essentially, once one side has moved all of their battalions, they then give the tools over to the other general or the other side, and then they go through all their battalions. And I highly recommend between each turn, allowing for the PCs to attempt communication or coordination of some kind, you know, if they're trying to be an active part of the battle. So now we're getting into the actual fight itself. Once two units have interlocked into combat, that's two melee units, or even if a ranged unit comes into contact with a melee unit, they are interlocked and now begins casualty control. What differentiates this system from a lot of others is that on each turn, regardless of whose turn it is, armies will have to calculate for casualties. There is no action to attack or anything like that. You simply just have one maneuver on your turn with each battalion. And that includes either moving and interlocking into battle or moving to get away from the fight. Ranged units work a little bit differently, but I'll go over that in just a second. Essentially after two or more battalions have interlocked, they will partake in casualty rolls. So they will have to roll their casualty dice and multiply it by their battle rating. And that is the amount of casualties they inflict onto the enemy side. The enemy then subtracts this from the total count and the battle progresses this way. Much like in regular 5e combat, a battalion cannot disengage without incurring more damage before they run away. Essentially the way ranged units work is that they can move, but they cannot fire a volley or fire anything after they have moved. They can move or they can fire, but they can't do both on the same turn. So moving them into position is more about planning for the next turn. The reason why melee units will immediately engage in casualties as opposed to having to make a turn for it is because they are interlocking as a result of their moving. So I hope that makes sense that each battalion gets what is essentially a maneuver which is to move up into the field, interlock, or disengage, or to fire their ranged weapons, but they cannot do more than that. Moving back onto casualty control, even after you have moved through all your battalions, when you switch the tools over to the other side or the other general, the first thing that they are going to have to do if they don't choose to disengage is to also do that casualty control. So no matter whose turn it is, there will be casualties incurred by the armies that are interlocked in fighting. And this is basically to show just how no matter what in combat, you are going to have casualties, and they're going to gain up quick. That's kind of the sense of urgency I wanted to have with this system. And as you can see by the fight going on here, at first it's kind of going in my favor because my wife kind of charged headlong into my front line, and I even got some really great uh, casualties due to my siege engine and to my archers. But this is soon not going to go my way, and that's kind of because of morale checks, and we might as well go over that really quick. I know I briefly mentioned it, but just to go over morale checks again, a unit has to roll a D20 and get at least a 15 or more every time they lose 25 points to their count. This also happens any anytime a general is killed or if the unit containing their general has to flee the field. And again, depending on your campaign, uh, morale checks can happen for any number of reasons if there's, another major character that dies, or if there's a strong unit that everyone looks up to that had to flee the battle, those are great reasons. If there's a mighty beast that one side is deathly afraid of or has never seen, I think that's a really good reason for a morale check. Feel free to have more fun with this than just the basic options that I've listed here. And another thing I also like to do is for players to use their constitution modifiers for the armies that they're embedded in. Uh, For example, if they have a morale check and a player has a really good constitution modifier, they can use that to add to their role. So instead of a 13, it's a 15 because of their constitution or something. Uh, That's a great way to get the players involved and a great way to bake it into 5e a little bit more. Another fun thing that we kind of like to do is when two armies clash that have the generals in them, you can challenge the other general to sort of a one-on-one fight. Uh, And a way I like to do that is using the skill challenges from 4E, where you basically just establish really big stakes for the players to overcome uh, with the skills that they choose, or even just the tools and everything that they have available to them. Say, for instance, when two battalions interlock, a rogue could sneak, a barbarian could bash, or a wizard could teleport their way to land a blow on the enemy strategist, and maybe put an end to the battle early. Basically, you're just going to rinse and repeat this kind of system Uh, over and over until one army is either fleeing or is just wiping out the other one despite the fact that morale is not shifting. As you can see, what eventually cracked my army in this fight is that my wife actually went straight for the battalion that had my general. And since she was using two armies on that single battalion, we added a small modifier to her peasant army where they got an additional boost to their battle rating. That's not an essential rule, but something that we definitely do at our table when we're flanking is add an extra two to the battle rating to up the casualty count. Feel free to make your own rules on flanking, but these are just the easiest ones that we've adopted. As you can see, though, the battle is starting to not go in my uh, not go in my favor here. Uh, all of my battalions are starting to flee, and she's kind of splintering everything. Despite the fact that I have actually done way more casualties to her... Uh, army, she has just clearly gained the bigger strategic vantage by cutting through the morale of my armies. Once my general left the field, everyone had to make a morale check, and then it was just a matter of bringing each battalion below 75 in order to make those morale checks come through. Whenever an army flees, you just kind of have them expend the max amount of movement they can to move backward on the board. Uh, some generals that you have can do things like rally retreating troops and stuff like that. So if that's something that you want a general on the field to have, or if your player characters want to try and make a desperate plea to the fleeing men to stay, and, to stay and fight, that would be incredibly thematically appropriate. But point being, the battles will often end with a lot of armies fleeing the battlefield. And depending on how the battle goes, it's really just going to be up to the DM to try and ground it back into typical 5E storytelling. But Considering this happened, I asked my wife what she would like to do with uh, my general in retreat, and she instantly took the strategy of, well, I know where he's going. Instead, let's just get our best rogues, and tonight we'll meet him in his army tent when he's least expecting it. And I found that rather devious, but also a great idea for a session, trying to kill a general that you thought you'd kill in battle but ended up getting away. Obviously, my system isn't perfect. It's just what works perfectly for my group. We do have rules for running sieges with walls, gates, structural health, all that kind of stuff, but I don't think that it is as necessary to bring up here. I'm sure you can come up with some of your own implementations for that sort of stuff. We did this for flying battalions and creatures as well, which I also didn't feel quite the need to bring up here. I'm sure many of you out there are still skeptical if mass combat is something that would fit your group well, But if I had to try and sell it to you, I would probably do it on the stakes alone. A fight with a grand villain can be elevated if they are slain on the battlefield among their troops, and the failure can be much more tragic if they aren't. My groups have used battles and skirmishes as tense events that we build up to over time, and we definitely establish at the beginning of the campaign if they're gonna come up. Even when we aren't using our system, we love using them as backdrops that create motivated reasons to run into enemies or have multiple options on how to approach the session. Much like a real battle, however you handle mass combat in 5e, it will take a lot of planning and learning from the successes of past greats. Thank you all so much for watching. I really appreciate it. I want to apologize that my video output has been slow as of late. I have been doing a lot of stuff in my own personal life and I am hoping that the longer videos recently have kind of made up for that. Uh, I am currently in a place where I think I will be able to return to doing weekly videos again, though. I want to thank all of you for your support and leaving comments all the time about your characters, campaigns, ideas, and all that stuff. It is truly fun to read through, so please let me know down below how you feel about the mass combat system I've shown off here, and if you guys are going to try adopting it. Um, and Actually, tell me about any systems and all that other, any other advice you have on implementing mass combat. Just because I've done it a lot, I don't exactly consider myself an expert and I'm always looking for new ideas. Uh, But thanks again for watching, guys. My name is Patrick Ferguson from Dice, and until next time, farewell.